This is a rebroadcast of the 2017 Study Smarter series, a collection of our mini-episodes for microbiology. You can get the full ad-free version of the 2017 Study Smarter series by going to insidetheboards.com and click on the Support the ITB podcast link on the homepage. Your donation will help keep Inside the Boards providing you this content for free. So enjoy. Today we're doing an overview of microbiology for our Step 1 Study Smarter series, and in subsequent mini-episodes, Elizabeth is going to be going over a handful of bugs per week for the rest of this month. Today's guest is Dr. Ken Rosenthal, who is a professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Roseman University of Health Sciences in Las Vegas. He is helping uh, start their new medical school and is co-author with Michael Tan of Rapid Review Microbiology and Immunology, as well as the textbook with Patrick Murray and Michael Thaler, Medical Microbiology, which has a new edition of companion flashcards coming out this year. That's correct, sir? Yes, they're already out, available for use. We will put a link to those in the show notes so that you guys can uh, purchase those and make use of them as you approach uh, learning micro and immunology for your board exams. Dr. Rosenthal, I have to tell you, in the six weeks prior to my dedicated step one study period back in, well, 2008, (laughs) so a little bit of a while ago, Uh, Besides a question bank, some audio lectures, and a few miscellaneous resources, I used three hard copy books. One was First Aid, because everybody uses that. The other was Rapid Review Biochemistry. Um, I was a philosophy major, so biochem had always been a weak point. And the final one was your uh, Rapid Review Micro and Immunology. So it's really an honor to have you on the show today. And in, in truth, I could say in part that Without you, uh, I might not be where I am today because that was an essential piece of me scoring well uh, on my own board exam. So thank you for being on the show and writing that book. (laughs) It's my pleasure, actually. It is a pleasure in in many regards. Strangely enough, uh, writing textbooks is the best way to learn the discipline and as a result be able to teach it better. And writing textbooks is my way to teach a lot more people than I can teach at any one institution. So how did you get involved in medical education specifically? Well, as with many things, uh, this was a job, but I've always enjoyed teaching. And so the opportunity to be able to teach in microbiology and immunology was, was a privilege. Both disciplines are very interesting to me. My research has been in microbiology and immunology. And I enjoy explaining things and making things uh, simpler. And so being able to translate the latest information, which I like to read up on, into easy-to-understand text became something that I enjoyed doing, a hobby, if you will. Well, um, that's a very helpful hobby for the rest of us that you have there. In your teaching career, I guess what I'd want to ask you first is, Specifically for microbiology, how do students approach a subject that's so vast? I mean, you've got viruses, fungi, bacteria, parasites. You've got to know all that, plus so many other things in undergraduate medical education. Microbiology is very daunting. I don't disagree. 
because you you open the book and you see all these strange words and strange uh, beasties, and and then each one is an entity unto itself. What I can say is that if you approach microbiology, pathogenic microbiology, as a detective story, and each bug is a villain, then the key is to to figure out its modus operandi and understand how it does its thing so that you can understand the crime and figure out the crime scene and what to do with it. So going back into to real words, the key is to learn basic structures and mechanisms of disease, virulence factors, pathogenesis, and immune response. So get a, a basis for that. Read the simplest book you can find. Go for the simple because you want the overview. Now, our textbook has an overview that I wrote that I think is pretty straightforward. And then once you have that basis, the key to uh, pathogenic microbes is how they cause disease. And how they cause disease is determined by virulence factors and the structure of the bug. And so the key there is for each virulence factor or each virulence mechanism, learn some classic examples. So for capsule, capsule is a classic virulence factor that allows the bug to stick around in the bloodstream for longer and escape detection and elimination. So learn strep pneumo or Neisseria meningitidis really, really well. On that sort of uh, example, what would you say perhaps the top three um, or must-know bacteria, viruses, parasites, and fungi are? So the, the top three bacteria are staph, strep, and then add any one you want. <laughs> okay. After uh, strep, probably pyogenes. I would add, uh, I would think in terms of E. coli or Pseudomonas before getting into more esoteric bacteria. Uh, there are a lot of others that are very important, but if you learn them by their virulence factor or some key trigger word, then they become much more approachable. And that's applicable as well to viruses, parasites, and fungi, so all microbes. Yeah, so for viruses, flu, herpes, simplex, and... and uh, HIV? HIV, absolutely, thank you, HIV. You might even th throw in there HPV a little bit because it it gives uh, some other aspects in there. For fungi, just Canada. <laughs> uh, having said that, I would add histoplasmosis, maybe, histoplasma. Again, it's a little bit different. And then um, cryptococcus neoformans because that covers different types of infections. And uh, <laughs> some, I guess, associated learning related to HIV in many respects. That's right. So infections that normal people can get as well as the immunocompromised. Yeah. For parasites, malaria, malaria, malaria. After that, it drops off considerably. Sure. But on the boards, they're going to put parasites because that's the minutia that still finds its way into the boards. Yeah. So as we would teach the course, I would study parasites absolutely last. So it's freshest in my mind before I go into the boards. Okay. That's some good takeaway advice. Uh, another trick related to that is to make a list of all those uh, impossible to remember things. And then that's what you study like the last week before you go in, just to sort of, again, bring it back up so that it's at your fingertips, if you will. So 
those are the, the top three bugs in each of the classes. This is a huge subject, and you told me about a particular kind of learning heuristic that you've come up with that can be applied to not only microbes, but um, really any kind of subject matter within or topic within medical education. Uh, can you explain a little bit about your approach to bugs specifically and, and more broadly um, other topics within medicine? I had to learn how to uh, learn this information just like a medical student coming from a basic science background. And so I put myself in a physician's chair, if you will, and I said, how would I want to learn this? And I came up with an acronym. My previous position, the previous place I lived was in Akron, so I, I can't come up with acronyms. Oh, that is yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's I know. a good one. That's <laughs> I, I have to throw in a pun every so often. That's a dad joke nowadays. We call them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I guess it is. So anyway, so the acronym is Dipper Dept or Diver Dept. Okay, so if I were a physician, I would start off with the differential, the disease presentation, and a differential diagnosis. That's the first D. So once I came up with a differential diagnosis, I w would want to be able to identify what's going on. So I, want, I would run lab tests to confirm my diagnosis. And in microbiology, it was to, to be to confirm which bug is causing the disease, which, which villain is acting. After that is V, my question would be, how is this all happening? And so for a bug, it's virulence factors that determine the nature of the disease. And in terms of other diseases, it's the pathophysiology that's occurring. Then after that is I, and this is the III, if, if you will. It's the innate, the inflammatory, and the immune response. III, innate, I, I, immune, I, I, inflammatory. Okay. Yeah. For e almost every disease, they either cause or cure the disease. And so understanding how the innate inflammatory and immune response acts on the microbe or acts in the disease progression helps you understand what's going on and how to deal with it. After that is an R, which is for replication, especially for viruses, because the replication cycle for viruses is a must, must know for the boards, and it helps understand the virus as well. For other microbes, it, it, it turns into how do they grow? Are there any growth requirements? Are they anaerobic, aerobic, things like that? Then we're back to the D again, and this is disease characteristics. Now that you know a little bit more about the disease in your patient, what can you expect in your patient for that because of that disease? After that, epidemiology. And it's the who, where, what, what, when, and how of the, the disease. I like to think of epidemiology as an, for microbiology as an infection of the population instead of an infection of a person. Sure. After that's prevention. And the key here is, is there a vaccine? Mm -hmm. And if not a vaccine, how do you prevent infection? Hygiene, special care for food, water, et cetera. Then it's treatment. And here we get into not just antimicrobials, but other treatments as well, especially now with some of the antibody treatments as well. And then finally, I added an S for social issues. So many diseases have social implications for the patient and for their family. And it turns out that these are becoming more and more addressed on the boards. 
What, what happens to the lifestyle of a person when they have Caesare syndrome or psoriasis, essentially the not only debilitating but maybe disfiguring type of presentations? Yeah. By using this DIPRDEPT acronym, you can organize how you approach each of the microbes. Now, for the, the big ones, you go through the complete DIPRDEPT. For, let's say, the others, you key on the main elements that connect to target and trigger words that will sort of remind you of that particular infection. And really, these elements you mentioned, those are all components that students should be, I guess, on guard about noticing within question vignettes, for instance. These That's are right. the sorts of things that help not only identify the bug, but can help you identify the answer on a, an exam as well. So if I were trying to study Staphylococcus, how would I go through this? What are some highlights? Um, would you want to walk me through a particular bug, really any bacteria, virus, or? So staph is a good one because staph, staph does everything. Yes. <laughs> one of the ways to, to help remember the acronym mm -hmm. is it's diver departments, diver okay. depths. So diver departments. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, it helps to remember the acronym a little bit. But let's take staph, for example. Yeah. And one of the classic examples is a staph infection that goes to toxic shock. So the symptoms... Actually, do you want me to go through the question now and, and use yeah, that? Yeah, to... we, we could bring up that question and, and use use that as a way to, to approach this, use this approach. Okay. All right. Yes. Let's then apply the Dipper Depths um, construct to a practice question. So we have... A 33-year-old man brought to the emergency department by his wife because of worsening fever, vomiting, and muscle pain over the past two days. In addition, the wife states that he had become increasingly disoriented and dizzy to the point where she took off from work yesterday and today to watch over him. Prior to this, he was doing well and he has recently recovered from getting chickenpox for the first time. On arrival, the patient has a fever of 39 degrees Celsius, which is 102.2 Fahrenheit. Physical examination shows diffuse scarlatiniform exanthem on his trunk spreading outwards, red conjunctiva bilaterally. Laboratory studies show elevated liver transaminase levels. Based on the patient's presentation, which of the following is an appropriate treatment for the underlying cause of his condition? And the answer choices are A, acyclovir, B, azithromycin, C, ceftriaxone, D, oxacillin, or E, valacyclovir. So I could give the answer now, which is what I usually do on this show, but should we walk through it first as a way of learning this and, and arriving at the correct answer? Well, first, a little test taking. Okay. I start by looking at the question and the, and the possible answers. So the question is treatment. And then from treatment, I look at the different uh, drugs that are listed, and I apply the old um, Sesame Street uh, <laughs> approach, which one of these is not like the others. Yep. And then what I see is that there are three drugs that are antibacterial, two that are antiviral. The three antimicrobials uh, come from three different mechanisms of action. Then I go back to the scenario and look at what's going on. And here, what I see is that there are a lot of distract 
Yeah. But really, the key is to go back and look to what's there. The emergency department says that this is pretty acute. The the varicella zoster, the chickenpox, is a distractor because chickenpox usually does not cause disorientation, dizziness. The rash is not a scarlatiniform exanthem. It's vesicular. And then liver disease could pop up. But what can happen with chicken pox is that the blisters, the vesicles can get infected with staph. Mm -hmm. And so then it's keeping your mind open for staph as a possibility. If it were staph, there could be a question that says, how would you determine the real cause of this problem? Mm-hmm. It could be what are the virulence factors, and so the dizziness, disorientation, the systemic muscle pain, the rash, it's, uh, the liver problems. That could be a toxic shock syndrome, toxin, mm-hmm. which is one of the basic virulence factors of staph. The superantigen uh, aspect of toxic shock syndrome, toxin would be related to the innate immune inflammatory response that's elicited. This could be caused by a staph aureus that is methicillin-sensitive or methicillin-resistant. And then basically, there's not a lot. uh, Prevention is staying clean, but it's hard to do that since staph is normal flora on the skin for many people. And then the question that we have here is about treatment. So looking at the possibilities, if it was methicillin-sensitive staph, then I would go with oxacillin. Yeah. Uh, which is related to methicillin. So really, in in one sense, it's almost a three-step question. You have treatments listed, so you have to know the clinical presentation enough to get the particular most likely diagnosis before you can even consider which treatments are there. And And so looking at it that way, you mentioned, so oxacillin would be indicative of an answered choice that is for a methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. That is what a disease process caused by a methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. That's really what this this particular answer choice is capturing. That's and, correct. And oxacillin is indeed the correct answer for this. But sorry, I interrupted you. Please continue. So, uh, as you said on the boards, most most questions are vignette-based, as this one is. So, the key is you have to know which villain is causing the infection in order to be able to approach the actual question. So, in the diverdept or diperdept, it's that first D that becomes so important. Mm-hmm. How does an infection by that organism present itself? Because you have to know that to come up with the differential diagnosis so that you can then transition to an answer for the other questions. And the other questions would be written regarding the iverdept that follows the initial differential diagnosis. Because as a physician, once you come up with a differential diagnosis, the other questions really tell you about your patient and what to do for your patient. And then that's the progression there. So we can move on to another question if you would like. Yeah, sure, definitely. Let's go to a seven-year-old girl who is brought to the urgent care clinic by her mother after she developed a rash on her shoulders, neck, and upper chest over the past 24 hours. The rash followed a fever and severe sore throat for two days' duration, 
The mother states that the other children in her in the patient's class have had similar symptoms. Physical examination of the patient shows a flushed and ill-appearing child with erythematous macules on her shoulders and chest. Examination shows a white tongue with inflamed papillae and tonsillar inflammation. Which of the following is a characteristic of the most likely agent causing the patient's symptoms? And the answer choices are A, coagulase production, B, resistance to optochin, C, sensitivity to bacitracin, D, sensitivity to novobiosin, or E, urease production. And you had said before, you think it's most important to look at the interrogatory, which of the following is characteristic of the most likely agent causing the patient's symptoms, and then to the actual choices prior to returning to the vignette. Yes. So here, once, once I create my differential diagnosis, they want, they want to ask me how I would confirm my diagnosis. What test would I run? Mm-hmm. And so here, it's a distinction between staph, strep, and some other bugs. And when I go into the, to the list here, I'm pretty confident it's a strep pyogenes infection based on the acute sore throat and the associated um, scarlet fever-like rash that came on with it. And so I would go with the characteristic of strep pyogenes, which is sensitivity to bacitracin, otherwise known as the A disc, mm-hmm. because it distinguishes strep A. Now, B, resistant to optogen, that's the P disc, which distinguishes strep pneumo. Imaginative names for these, these discs, yes. A disc and P disc. And coagulase distinguishes staph from staph aureus from staph epi. So, in going with that, again, it's differential diagnosis from the vignette, and then I look at the possible answers, then I make sure that I know what the question is addressing before I go into any more detail. Sure, and I think it's probably also important to note that that with an interrogatory like this, coupled with the answer choices, it's not important to memorize that this bug is coagulase positive. This one is resistant to optogen, etc. It's probably more important to understand what those terms mean. And my guess is their implications, and correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of the virulence factors that that they describe or unique characteristics of the bacteria that they illustrate. Well, that's very true. Let me give you a, uh, another hint here, and that is, I think the boards do like uh, the how to distinguish staph and strep species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the tricks, and this is in the rapid review, but it's in almost every textbook as well. If you look at the, how to distinguish uh, staph and strep, the tree uh, for diagnosis, and you go down the tree, the different steps in making the diagnosis, each of the branch points in distinguishing staph from strep and then staph aureus from staph epi and the different streps are actually virulence factors. Yeah. And so it's a way not only to make the distinction, but also to, to sort of remember how these bugs do their thing. So coagulase production is going to mean that this is a staph um, aureus. aureus organism over a staph epidermis organism. Does that have 
I guess uh, it's not just a taxonomic um, point, Distinction? right? It's, no. So what what is coagulase telling us? So it turns out that coagulase is the critical difference that makes Staph aureus nasty and Staph epi not nasty. If you take uh, the coagulase activity, the gene, and you put it into very benign gram-positive bacteria called lactobacillus, it becomes nasty. Coagulase allows the Staph aureus to adhere better to target cells to escape immune responses. And one of the ways it does that is by essentially building a clot around the infection site to restrict entry of immune cells to to the site of infection. Even with that, neutrophils are able to get in and, and cause all the pus that you see with this pyogenic type of infection. But still, combined with catalase, these two become very important virulence factors that facilitate uh, Staph aureus's ability to escape immune control. Now, mm-hmm. Staph has a lot of other tricks up its sleeve to defend itself, so to speak, main, be able to grow in us. We don't need to go through them right now. All right. So this uh, kid has very clearly a scarlet fever. So the answer is which of the following char- is characteristic of the most likely agent, which is strep uh, group A streptococcus or strep pyogenes. The answer here is sensitivity to bacitracin. That's correct. And bacitracin is, is simply used here as a test. Bacitracin is um, an antibiotic that most of us don't think very much about. It's it's an antibiotic that works on the cell wall biosynthesis, and it's um, it's one of the three antibiotics in the triple uh, antibiotic creams that use so prevalently as an, an topical antibiotic. All right. So, do you have time for one more? Sure. So, in this question, we have a two-year-old boy who is brought to his pediatrician by his mother because of a low-grade fever for the last 24 hours. The patient's mother states that he has been coughing frequently lately and that he seems more fatigued than usual. When asked about recent travel, she mentions that her family went to visit close relatives out of state a week before, and he was around quite a few children his age. The patient currently has a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Examination shows mild pharyngeal and palatal erythema without exudate, as well as enlarged and erythematous nares. Which of the following is the best diagnostic test to confirm the cause of the patient's symptoms? And the answers here are A, anti-streptolysin O serologic titer, B, heterophile antibody detection test, C, nucleic acid amplification test, skin biopsy and cell culture, or E, throat culture test? And the answer here is throat culture. Why is the answer throat culture here? Well, looking just at the five possibilities uh, and applying the Sesame Street approach, which one of these is not like the other? The throat culture test is the cheapest and easiest of all of them. Mm Mm-hmm. And you should always do the cheapest and easiest first before you approach anything else. So that would sort of put that high on my list. But going back, I'm looking at uh, this is a low-grade fever that in a child, mild 
pharyngeal and palatal erythema, which means a sore throat. After being around a lot of other kids, kids always get this stuff, kid crud. So the easiest and the most straightforward thing to do is to test for the most likely, which is just do a throat culture. And the most likely bug here would be uh, group A streptococcus. Group A strep again. Very contagious, very prevalent, and for a two-year-old, very likely. So so what if I get through this question and I'm I'm pretty sure I know it's a group A beta streptococcal infection. So I go through the answers and I at least two of these, three of these answer choices have something to do with group A strep. So anti-streptolysin O serologic titer is used to confirm prior group A strep infections, but not for the acute setting. You, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head, and that is to get a titer implies time. Yeah. And we have a two-year-old, which means it's probably an, uh, a first, exp- it could be a first exposure, probably. And so there won't be any antibody that early, but there will be bacteria, there will be antigens that can be tested directly, but there will not be antibody yet. And antibody tests cost more money too. Not not so much anymore, but uh, still. The throat culture test is the is for an acute presentation of, of the disease. A heterophile antibody test would be something more like infectious mononucleosis caused by Epstein-Barr. Right. Um, is what they're trying to get you to think about. Um, but um, although it's typically asymptomatic, we'd expect perhaps a variety of symptoms like, in addition, diarrhea, abdominal complaints, uh, otitis media type things, or other upper respiratory tract symptoms in this setting. For Epstein-Barr virus, children are oftentimes asymptomatic. Even so, I would expect uh, swollen lymph nodes uh, with the sore throat. And that's not the first go-to with a sore throat either. In addition, you can't do anything about it. Right. <laughs> now, the the next two possibilities, nucleic acid amplification test and skin biopsy and cell culture, now we're talking big bucks and really also special cases, very special cases. So nucleic acid amplification, I know a little bit about that. I'm on OBGYN, so we tend to use that more in the setting of gonococcal or a chlamydial infection testing. A more sophisticated test. Yeah. Now, having said that, there is new technology to use nucleic acid amplification to distinguish respiratory infections very quickly so that a pneumonia can be treated or not, depending upon whether it's a bacteria or a viral uh, etiology and which bacteria. Now, relatively rapidly and relatively cheaply, nucleic acid amplification tests. That wouldn't be on the boards. It's too new for the boards. (laughs) With skin biopsy and cell culture, in in my mind, clinically, to me, it would seem that that would be the correct answer if I were looking for a disease process or bacteria, virus, whatever, that had a localized or particular kind of manifestation, for instance, in the setting of like a abscess. Well, a skin 
A skin biopsy and then putting it into cell cultures suggests that it's uh, you're looking for a virus because you you want something to come out of the skin and grow in a cell culture. That would be one possibility. Or you could say doing a skin biopsy and seeing if anything is extractable that would grow from that. Generally, in my experience, skin biopsies, when they're taken for, let's say, a fungal infection or a unusual, let's say, mycobacterial skin infection, but these skin biopsies are evaluated first by histology and then by immunohistology to determine what's going on in, in the infection. I will say I don't want to take too much of your time, and uh, Dr. Rosenthal has agreed that he can probably teach con- important concepts in immunology in about 20 minutes based on the example of a cut in the skin. So we are going to have him back on to discuss that. Um, but before we leave the topic of microbiology uh, for our Step 1 Study Smarter series, any other pearls of wisdom you have to offer those who are starting to think about a big looming test come end of May, June? Yes, actually, I have a very important hint as to how to approach this, the NBME. And it's something I've always told my students, and that is don't use that four-letter word. Test, exam, quiz is a four-letter word. Get rid of it. The NBME is a challenge. Think of it as a challenge just as you would approach a big sports match, a big game as a challenge. And the big difference is this is a challenge for the gray muscle instead of the red muscle. <laughs> when you switch that concept of approaching this challenge to let the gray muscle show itself, now you think of it as a sport. Hmm. And now you can say to yourself, I am intelligent. I am good. All I need to do is build up my skills and my ability and show those people how good I really am. And so, it becomes a training rather than a torture. So approach the challenge that you're, you're facing in the NBME. Not, don't use the four-letter words. And when you think about it that way, that you're in training, then the key is you have to be healthy. You have to be sane. You have to go in with a positive attitude because with any sport, be it red muscle sport or a gray muscle sport, you have to think positive. I know I'm going to do well. I'm going to succeed and I'm going to show them how bright and how great I am. And that's how you approach the challenge of the NBME exam. All right. So that's my word of wisdom. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Welcome to our first ever mini episode for the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series, review for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. You can hear more about how we are going to be helping you to prepare for Step 1 by listening to our episode entitled, What is the Study Smarter series? on iTunes, or by visiting our website at insidetheboards.com backslash podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Beeman. I will be doing the mini episode question dissections for the Step 1 series, and these mini episodes will focus on pharmacology and microbiology specifically. Our question today comes from the osmosis cubing. A 25-year-old woman comes to your clinic complaining of low-grade fever and malaise for three days. She is a self-described hiking enthusiast and had a short weekend camping trip in Maryland 10 days ago. Physical examination shows an expanding erythematous patch with a clear ring on the upper right arm. 
as well as regional lymphadenopathy. Which of the following is most likely to occur if this patient's condition is left untreated? And our answer choices are A, alopecia, B, infertility, C, inflammatory arthritis, D, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, or E, galactorrhea. And the correct answer is C, inflammatory arthritis. Let me take you inside this question so we can see just how we arrived at this answer. So in order to predict what might happen next if this patient doesn't get treated, we first have to figure out what she has. Low-grade fever, malaise, and even regional lymphadenopathy should be identified immediately as vague findings that are unlikely to rule in or out a certain diagnosis, but generally point to some kind of infectious process. Part of improving your efficiency in step one is recognizing these vague symptoms and taking brief note of them, pushing them to the back of your mind, and looking for more key differentiating factors presented in the vignette. Like, this patient has a very specific description for her rash and a recent travel history to a certain part of the country. For step one, if we see a patient with a ring-shaped rash, we also have a certain differential that we can think of. Tinea corporis, or ringworm, often caused by trichophytum or microsporum, is one thing that we could think about. However, the vignette would probably present a patient that had potential exposure to another human or animal infected with ringworm. Think of children who are at daycares or wrestlers who use mats that aren't always cleaned. We can also think of cutaneous lupus, and in that case, you would usually have a descriptor that had the rash in particularly sun-exposed areas. However, lupus is more often described as a discoid rash or the pathognomonic, especially for step one, remember this, butterfly-shaped rash on the face. Then we have our ringed erythemas, erythema multiforme, erythema marginatum, and erythema migrans. Erythema multiforme is multiple different lesions all over the body, and in this we have only one. In erythema multiforme, you see purpuric macular lesions, and they're always associated with some kind of systemic immune reaction. Think about Steven Johnson syndrome, and think about a patient who would be presented as having recently gotten some kind of infection or recently started a new drug. Erythema marginatum are described as pink rings with a very good margin around them. You can think of that. And those are also multiple. They can be on the torso and limbs and can come and go, and that is part of the typical presentation. We see this in rheumatic fever, and remember the causative agent for that is strep pyogenes, and erythema migrans, which are the circle-ringed rashes of Lyme disease, our correct answer. And we knew it was Lyme disease because we often hear this bullseye appearance, but we're seeing that this vignette is describing a ringed-shaped rash, and we can remember that the board's just like this vignette, has gotten away from using these kind of buzzwords because they make it a little bit too easy. Seeing a target lesion, seeing a bullseye lesion, that makes you think of Lyme disease. You don't have to do enough thinking. So they want to actually describe what the rash looks like to you and make sure you really understand what it means. We also know that this patient had a re recent travel history of camping in Maryland, which of course makes us think which of these diseases is associated with camping in the northeastern U.S., remembering patients get tick bites, thereby getting Lyme disease when they go camping. And for step one, the Ixodes deer tick transmits Borrelia burgdorferi, which of course is Lyme disease. Other symptoms associated with Lyme disease that you should know are arthritis, which is the correct answer, AV node block, and facial nerve palsy, Bell's palsy. The popular mnemonic is face. It can make you think of these symptoms as the patient in the vignette was just recently exposed, likely only a few days ago. All she's going to have is that localized rash and the flu-like symptoms that are the common presentation of the beginning of Lyme disease. The question is asking us, of course, what happens if we don't treat her? And now we think about it going on to stage two and three of Lyme disease. 
Stage two can include that third degree block of the heart in the aforementioned Bell's palsy, as well as the arthralgias, which we have as our correct answer. And stage three involves infection spreading to the brain, which can cause encephalopathy. Remember, like syphilis, Lyme disease can cause neurologic sequelae in the later stages. Most importantly, we really need to remember our mnemonic when we think of Lyme disease so that we remember all of the sequelae associated with it. Also, know that doxycycline is our treatment of choice if we were going to intervene. So let's think about our other choices. Choice A was alopecia, hair loss. What causes hair loss? Well, there is one infectious cause on the boards, tinea capitis. It's a fungal infection of the scalp. Uh, there's a few drugs that may also cause it, but we don't need to get into that because it's not really something you would need to know for step one. But vitamin deficiencies is something you need to know. And specifically vitamin A and Bs, especially patients with anorexia, can present with hair loss. What's our other cause? Something endocrine, and that's hypothyroidism, can also cause hair loss. Infertility is choice B for infectious causes of infertility. Think of a female with salpingitis, which can be caused by pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. Its most notable causes are chlamydia trachomatis and Neisseria gonorrhea. In a male, orchitis as a result of mumps can also cause infertility, or more rarely, oophoritis in women. While Lyme disease can cause encephalitis and meningitis, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis is associated specifically with measles. It's also abbreviated SSPE. It actually occurs years after the measles infection, and we have to remember that that measles is the rash that starts from the head and spreads downward. We see that in a vignette that would present an unvaccinated child. This patient doesn't fit any of that description. Choice E is galactorrhea. It's the production and flow of breast milk associated with hyperprolactinemia, and it's an abnormal regulation of prolactin levels. This can happen via the hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and or various chemical interactions. Specifically, we want to think about dopamine antagonism, which we see with antipsychotic medications. So this would be a side effect of antipsychotic medications commonly. So to summarize our approach, we established what was being asked. We ruled out the information that wasn't pertinent to answering the question. We chose the specific findings as clues to our diagnosis, and we referred to our memory and our mnemonic of what makes Lyme disease unique, namely the bullseye rash and the exposure to the tick-infested area. And then we remembered of the secondary symptoms as a result of Lyme disease, which one of these is given as an answer choice. So thank you for listening in today. Welcome, I'm Elizabeth Beeman, and I have three excellent high-yield questions for you today. So let's get started. Our first question is a 27-year-old woman comes to the clinic because of burning during urination for the past two days. She had a similar episode a month ago that resolved with one dose of antibiotics. Urine culture now shows a novobiosin resistant organism that does not reduce nitrate. Which of the following is the most likely causative agent of this patient's symptoms? And the choices are A. Staphylococcus saprophyticus, B. Enterococcus fecium, C. Proteus mirabilis, D. E. coli, or E. Klebsiella pneumoniae. And the correct answer is Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Let's talk about what this patient has in the most likely causative agents, and then we'll get to how we figured out the correct answer. So hopefully you could tell from the vignette, young female, burning urination, previous symptoms went away after an antibiotic, and her urine culture shows she's got something growing in there. She's got a urinary tract infection. Let's talk about what the top three causes of UTI are in this age group. So first of all, E. coli is the number one leading cause of UTI in all age groups. That's important to know for step one. 
Staphylococcus saprophyticus is another one of the top three, and Klebsiella pneumoniae is probably the third one of those top three. So you really want to remember E. coli, Staph saprophyticus, and Klebsiella pneumoniae when talking about UTI. We have some more specific clues. Our urine culture for this patient showed novobiosin resistance. If we remember what novobiosin resistance is usually an indicator of, it's usually used to differentiate between Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is a normal flora that causes some pretty severe biofilms and can cause pretty bad infections in patients with things like indwelling catheters and shunts. That organism is novobiosin sensitive, so Staphylococcus epidermidis, novobiosin sensitive. Staphylococcus saprophyticus then, the one that we are usually trying to differentiate it from, is novobiosin resistant. The bug that we're talking about in this question is novobiosin resistant. So that's our first clue that Staphylococcus saprophyticus is going to be the correct answer. Now, if we already knew Staph saprophyticus is one of the top causes of UTI in young women, this would be very encouraging news. If we didn't remember that, we could keep going on. We hopefully would remember that E. coli is a big leading cause of urinary tract infection. However, we have a clue in the vignette that's going to be the key differentiating factor to tell us that E. coli isn't the right answer in this question. And what is it? It's the fact that the organism that was obtained from the urine culture does not reduce nitrate. If you'll remember, Proteus mirabilis, E. coli, and Klebsiella, three of our wrong answers, they all reduce nitrate. Knowing those three organisms reduce nitrate is very important. And it's actually the only other information you need to arrive back at the correct answer, Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Now, we did have another distracting answer, Enterococcus fecium. This is a normal flora found in the colon and is a very uncommon cause of urinary tract infection in women. So this answer is not as likely because it is not an, a likely cause of urinary tract infection. A few more little pieces of information to know about the bugs that we just talked about. Klebsiella pneumoniae and Proteus mirabilis are both implicated in formation of ammonium magnesium phosphate kidney stones. Remember those big kidney stones that cause the staghorn calculi, like those giant ones you can see very easily on imaging? Those ones are caused by infections with Proteus mirabilis or Staphylococcus saprophyticus or Klebsiella. So any of those three can lead to that presentation. They're also called struvite stones. While these kind of stones only account for about 15% of kidney stones, it is important to remember which bacteria can lead to this presentation. And these stones are radio-opaque. Another good thing to remember about Staphylococcus saprophyticus is that it is a gram-positive, catalase-positive, and coagulase-negative Staphylococcus that does not reduce nitrate. We do have to keep an eye out as Staphylococcus saprophyticus can cause cystitis and is a very common cause of cystitis and pyelonephritis if it isn't treated. So the important key differentiating factors we needed to know to answer this question was that the nitrate-reducing causes of urinary tract infection are Proteus mirabilis, E. coli, and Klebsiella pneumoniae. We needed to know that Staphylococcus saprophyticus is associated with novobiosin resistance and that the three leading causes of urinary tract infection are Staphylococcus saprophyticus, E. coli, and Klebsiella pneumoniae, with E. coli being the overall leading cause. Our next question is, a six-year-old boy is brought to the pediatrician's office by his parents because of blister formation on his buttocks for the past three days. His mother reports seeing enlarged blisters that appear to be filled with fluid. His temperature is 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse is 72 per minute, respirations are 18 per minute, and blood pressure is 95 over 60. 
nasty. Physical examination shows multiple fluid-filled bullae which slough off easily to light touch. Which of the following toxins is most likely responsible for this patient's condition? A. Exfoliative toxin A. B. Pyrogenic exotoxin. C. Streptolysin O. D. Streptolysin S. Or E. Toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. And the correct answer is... A, exfoliative toxin A. So let's first talk about this patient's diagnosis. It's a young child, six years old, a specific area of the body affected with a apparent bacterial infection. The mother is reporting seeing enlarged blisters on his buttocks that are filled with fluid. And it's really confined to only one area of the body. It's not a diffuse blistering all over the entire body. The question describes blisters with a very thin layer of epidermis that sloughs off very easily to light touch. This should make us immediately think of exfoliative toxin A, which is a toxin produced by Staphylococcus aureus. Remember exfoliative toxin A for its involvement in two clinical presentations. First of all, it's involved in bullous impetigo. You'll remember there is two forms of impetigo. The more common form is the non-bullous form that is also caused by Staphylococcus aureus. But in the non-bullous form of impetigo, we see this honey-colored, crusted skin infection, also seen very commonly in children, affects a specific area of the body and is isolated to that area. But again, it is it is caused by Staphylococcus aureus. We don't see blisters, but we see this honey-crusted kind of infection on the skin. In the bullous form of impetigo, which is described in the clinical presentation, we see large fluid-filled blisters in one isolated area of the body that slough off easily. This is because exfoliative toxin A targets desmoglein, which actually separates the layers of the skin very similarly to the pathogenesis of pemphigus vulgaris, if you remember that. So, when we see a bullous impetigo, it's a result of the same process and it is a result of Staphylococcus aureus exfoliative toxin. The other way that this can present is that a primary Staphylococcus aureus infection that allows for hematogenous spread of exfoliative toxin A to farther away parts of the body can result in staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. Now, we would know that this was staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome if we saw a patient with diffuse blistering over the entire surface of the body. The diffuse blistering is a result, again, of the direct hematogenous spread of this toxin to all over the body. It's a very dangerous condition, but it's still caused by the same organism, Staphylococcus aureus. Let's talk about our wrong answer choices. Choice B, pyrogenic exotoxin, is produced by strep pyogenes. Streptococcus pyogenes is responsible for rheumatic fever and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Remember that rheumatic fever is associated with polyarthritis, carditis, nodules. We can also see erythema marginatum in Sydenham chorea. Pharyngitis is usually the predisposing infection before rheumatic fever, still caused by a gram-positive cocci that is streptococcus pyogenes, a group A strep. We will talk about streptococcus pyogenes in a later episode, but remember there is an immunologic way that it causes damage. This leads to rheumatic fever and glomerulonephritis, a toxigenic mechanism which leads to scarlet fever and the toxic shock-like syndrome or necrotizing fasciitis. And the pyogenic reaction can lead to pharyngitis, cellulitis, impetigo, and erysipelas. However, most common cause of impetigo in children is still Staphylococcus aureus. Pyrogenic exotoxin, this choice B that we have here, is 
like I said, produced by Streptococcus pyogenes, and it is actually considered a super antigen. It causes uncontrolled proliferation of T lymphocytes. And this is the one that's associated with that scarlet fever and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. This patient does not have symptoms of scarlet fever. Scarlet fever, we would think of blanching, sandpaper-like body rash. And remember that buzzwords, that strawberry tongue that we see with scarlet fever, often preceded by a streptococcal pharyngitis infection. We're not presented with a patient with that clinical presentation, so we know this is very unlikely to be the causative toxin. Choice C, streptolysin O, is also produced by streptococcus pyogenes. It is a highly immunogenic toxin, and for that reason, we actually use it to differentiate whether a patient has been exposed to strep pyogenes. So we essentially use it to tell whether someone with acute renal failure may have that because of a streptococcus pyogenes infection. Streptolysin O itself actually is responsible for degrading cell membranes. And you can remember that the streptolysin, the O after the streptolysin, is shaped like a red blood cell and that this toxin is responsible for lysing red blood cells. Choice D, streptolysin S, is a virulence factor produced by streptococcus pyogenes. It damages leukocytes and cellular organelles. This is a non-immunogenic toxin as opposed to streptolysin O. And choice E, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, is a super antigen. The way that it is related to the correct answer is that they are both produced by Staphylococcus aureus, However, this one is responsible for, you guessed it, toxic shock syndrome. A patient with toxic shock syndrome would be hemodynamically unstable. Blood pressure could be incredibly low. The overall release of inflammatory cytokines throughout the body that happens as a result of this toxin causes capillary leakage, tissue damage, and multi-organ failure. This is a very, very systemically sick patient. Still caused by Staph aureus, not the correct toxin. So the major takeaway for this question is remembering the toxins associated with Staphylococcus aureus. The two we discussed were exfoliative toxin A, which is implicated in Staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, and bullus impetigo, which we saw in this picture, both of which present with fluid-filled blisters that easily slough off. And the other toxin produced by Staphylococcus aureus that we discussed was toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, which is a super antigen implicated in toxic shock syndrome. Our final question today is a five-year-old boy with hydrocephalus is brought into the emergency department because of fever, headache, and vomiting for the past 24 hours. The mother states he had a shunt placed two weeks ago, and within a week he seemed weaker and his appetite decreased. Physical examination is unremarkable. A cerebrospinal fluid sample was analyzed and showed leukocytosis with an increased neutrophil number, decreased protein, and decreased glucose. Which of the following results is expected from analysis of cerebrospinal fluid? A. Acid fast positive microorganisms. B. Coagulase negative staphylococcus. C. Gram negative rods. Or D. PCR positivity for a herpes simplex virus. And the correct answer is coagulase negative staphylococcus. And if you'll remember from earlier, we actually kind of had a hint in the very first question of this episode as to what the correct answer was going to be because. I discussed the difference between Staphylococcus saprophyticus and Staphylococcus epidermidis. And when I talked about Staphylococcus epidermidis, I mentioned that that was a novobiosin-sensitive organism that was responsible for infections in patients with prosthetic devices like shunts. 
So let's talk about how we can figure out what our correct answer was for this question. This patient who is two weeks out from surgery in which a shunt was placed in his spinal canal should make you think of an infection related to this surgical procedure. The cerebrospinal fluid sample showed leukocytosis, so elevated white blood cells, as well as a left shift, the increased number of neutrophils that demonstrates a likely bacterial infection. If this was a viral infection, we would be thinking about a what's known as a right shift with the leukocytosis. The right shift is indicative of increased monocytes and lymphocytes. And again, we see that with a viral infection. So we're going to go ahead and right away think that we're dealing with a bacterial infection. If we weren't sure, the cerebrospinal fluid analysis further demonstrated bacterial infection when it describes a decreased protein and decreased glucose. You'll remember that encephalitis and meningitis that are caused by bacteria are associated with decreased levels of glucose in the CSF while viral meningitis is not. So we can right away eliminate choice D, PCR positivity for herpes simplex virus as the correct answer. If the correct answer was going to be herpes simplex virus, we would likely see CSF findings consistent with a viral meningitis, which would be the leukocytosis with a right shift, no decreased glucose, and perhaps even imaging findings demonstrating a temporal lobe encephalitis, as we remember that herpes simplex encephalitis is more likely to be primarily affecting the temporal lobes of the brain. Choice A, acid-fast positive cerebrospinal fluid would be seen in a patient with meningitis secondary to tuberculosis. This patient has no history of exposure to tuberculosis. There's no positive PPD. There's no findings of granulomas in the lungs. Choice C, gram-negative rods, are more commonly seen in the respiratory and enteric tract. So we need to think about salmonella, shigella, when we think about gram-negative rods, and would be an unlikely cause for this patient's meningitis. So the major takeaway for this question, the thing we really want you to remember for this question is that coagulase negative staphylococci like Staphylococcus epidermidis, a normal skin flora, become a big problem for patients with prosthetic devices due to their ability to form biofilms. That's all for today. We will have a new organism for you in the next episode. I'm Elizabeth Beeman. Here are your questions for today. A 35-year-old man with no significant past medical history presents to the emergency department with shaking chills, chest pain with respirations, and shortness of breath as well as a cough productive of yellow-green phlegm for the past two days. The patient currently has a temperature of 102.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Physical examination reveals a man in mild respiratory distress. Auscultation of the chest is significant for bilateral rails. Chest X-ray reveals consolidation of the right middle lobe and lower left lobe. Gram stain of sputum reveals gram-positive lancet-shaped diplococci. Which of the following is a characteristic of the most likely causative pathogen? A. Alpha hemolysis. B, catalase positivity, C, M proteins in the cell wall, or D, optican sensitivity. And the correct answer is A, alpha hemolysis. So what is the causative organism in this question? We have an adult patient, 35-year-old, no known exposure to any tuberculosis or any other bizarre pathogens, and no immune, no deficiencies, no increased susceptibility to anything in particular. So this question is essentially presenting us a patient with a productive pneumonia who is an adult. What is the most likely causative pathogen in an adult patient with pneumonia? 
Streptococcus pneumoniae. We can confirm our suspicions with the gram stain, which reveals gram-positive lancet-shaped diplococci. Remembering that diplococci, just like all of the streptococcus, are in some form of chain, are in a strip form, two cocci right next to each other. For other alpha-hemolytic streptococci, we should think of group D strep, enterococci, and non-enterococci. For enterococci, remember that they're always found in the GI tract and that hospitalized patients are especially susceptible to infections with this group of bacteria. They're actually the second most common cause of hospital-acquired infections. And remember, VRE is vancomycin-resistant enterococci and is creating an increasingly big problem for many hospitals around the country. So we can also remember that viridin's group streptococci are also alpha-hemolytic and can cause endocarditis and dental infections. That's the good association for the viridin's group streptococci. Beta hemolysis is seen in the Streptococcus pyogenes, the group B strep. Catalase positivity, answer choice B, is incorrect because Streptococci do not create catalase. Staphylococcus do. That's actually one of the ways that we can tell them apart. Staphylococcus aureus is a rare but very severe cause of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia and usually occurs following a viral infection that leaves the host susceptible to a bacteria to come in and colonize the lung mucosa. It is more rare, so it's not the correct answer as well as it doesn't fit with a gram stain, obviously. The important thing to remember about Staphylococcus aureus-associated pneumonia is that it is a very rapid destruction of the lung parenchyma. It results in these large cavities, these holes throughout the lung, lead to effusions and empyema, which is the collection of pus in the pleural space. That would be the picture we would see clinically in a Staphylococcus aureus pneumonia. M proteins in the cell wall, choice C, M-proteins are one of the Lansfield antigens. Any of the streptococcus-associated antigens that are lettered like M, A, B, C. M is one of the most important ones to remember. It's associated with streptococcus pyogenes, and streptococcus pyogenes is the one responsible for rheumatic fever. And the way that this works is that the M antigen, which is part of the virulence factor created by streptococcus pyogenes, has antibodies created against it when a patient has a an acute strep infection, like a strep pharyngitis. A few weeks later, as IgM and IgG build up, those antibodies may recognize a very similar looking antigen on certain cells in our own body, like cardiac tissue. This leads to the clinical picture that we see in rheumatic fever when those IgG and IgM antibodies against the M proteins attack our own host cells, our own cells. Now, that causes rheumatic fever, but it does take a few weeks for that to happen. Again, these are only associated with, M protein is associated with streptococcus pyogenes specifically, and streptococcus pneumoniae does not have any Lansfield antigens. Optican resistance, choice D, is incorrect because streptococcus pneumoniae can actually be differentiated from another alpha-hemolytic strep, strep viridens, because strep viridens is resistant to optican, while strep pneumo is sensitive to it. Remember about strep viridens, it's the one that we find in dental cavities and an important cause of endocarditis, especially following dental procedures. So just to give you a few more tips about pneumonia, while the most common cause of pneumonia in adults 
is streptococcus pneumoniae. RSV is actually the number one cause of pneumonia in young children, especially infants less than six months of age. The most important factor that the streptococcus pneumoniae has in order to create pneumonia is the capsular polysaccharide antigens. It's these same polysaccharide antigens that are used to create the pneumococcal vaccine. It actually has 25 of the antigens in it. You've also heard this called the pneumovax. But the important thing to know about the pneumococcal vaccine is that it's only given to people for whom pneumococcal pneumonia would be exceptionally deadly, such as immunocompromised patients or elderly patients. For our second question, a seven-year-old girl is brought to the urgent care clinic by her mother after she developed a rash on her shoulders, neck, and upper chest in the past 24 hours. The rash followed a fever and a severe sore throat for two days duration. The mother states that other children in the patient's class have had similar symptoms. Physical examination of the patient shows a flushed and ill-appearing child with erythematous macules on her shoulders and chest. Physical examination is also notable for a white tongue with erythematous papillae and tonsillar inflammation. Which of the following is a characteristic of the most likely agent causing this patient's symptoms? And the answer choices are A. Coagulase production B. Resistance to optican C. Sensitivity to bacitracin D. Sensitivity to novobiosin or E. Urease production the correct answer is C, sensitivity to bacitracin. And what is the most likely causative agent in this question? Well, we're given the picture of a child who had a very severe sore throat and a fever for several days that she probably picked up from one of her classmates. And this was followed by a secondary illness with a rash that spread from her head downward and also this kind of bizarre appearance of the tongue, a white tongue with erythematous papillae as well as tonsillar inflammation. So this patient has the features of scarlet fever. So scarlet fever is associated with a blanching, sandpaper-like body rash, sometimes described with that buzzword of sandpaper-like, and the strawberry tongue, which is described in the clinical vignette. And this is seen in the setting of a group A streptococcal pharyngitis following that pharyngitis. Knowing that group A strep, strep pyogenes, is the most likely causative organism, we can go to our answer choices. We know that sensitivity to bacitracin is the differentiating factor for Streptococcus pyogenes versus Streptococcus agalactae in other group B Streptococcus. Remember that Strep pyogenes is a gram-positive beta-hemolytic catalase-positive bacteria. Answer choice A, coagulase production. Which bacteria makes coagulase? Usually Staph aureus or Yersinia pestis. If the vignette wanted to describe a patient with Staphylococcus aureus as the causative agent, we might have seen a patient who had food poisoning two to six hours after ingestion of a food that had been sitting out in the sun to spoil and then reheated. The enterotoxin created by Staphylococcus aureus is heat-stable. Even though the food was recooked, the patient would still have gotten sick course, we could have also been presented with a patient with impetigo or cellulitis, the most common causative agents of which are staph and strep. And we remember that Yersinia pestis is also the plague. This patient obviously does not have a clinical presentation consistent with the plague. Choice B, resistance to optican. Among the catalase-negative gram-positive alpha-hemolytic bugs, strep pneumoniae may be distinguished from Virden streptococci by optican sensitivity. We already talked about that. Strep pneumoniae is sensitive to optican. Virden's is resistance. Choice D, sensitivity to novobiosin. 
Again, among catalase-positive and gram-positive bugs, Staphylococcus epidermidis can be distinguished from Staphylococcus saprophyticus by novobiosin sensitivity. We talked about this in the Staphylococcus episode. Staphylococcus epidermidis is the one that's especially good at creating biofilms. We see infections with Staphylococcus epidermidis on implantable devices, patients who have artificial joints. It's a part of the normal skin flora. Normally, it's not introduced into the body, but because it's so good at creating these biofilms, Anybody who has something artificially implanted into them is susceptible to a staph epidermidis infection. Staphylococcus saprophyticus then was one of the most common causes of urinary tract infections in women. Those, again, can be differentiated by the novobias resistance. And Staphylococcus epidermidis is sensitive to novobiasin. Choice E, urease production. Urease production is typically a characteristic of the GI and urinary tract pathogens like Proteus, urea plasma, nocardia, Klebsiella, and Brucella. The main things to remember about Streptococcus pyogenes is that it has multiple different manifestations for infections. First of all, we have the release of various toxins, which can cause illness. In the presentation of scarlet fever, as in the vignette, it's pyrogenic exotoxin and erythrogenic exotoxin that cause the rash and fever associated with scarlet fever. Remember, this is usually following a pharyngeal strep infection. It can also cause streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, as well as necrotizing fasciitis, other skin infections, and of course, streptococcal pharyngitis. The delayed antibody-mediated disease associated with streptococcus pyogenes includes rheumatic fever, This does not usually present until several weeks because it does take buildup of IgG and IgM, again directed towards the M protein, which is part of the virulence factors of Streptococcus pyogenes. And the clinical presentation of rheumatic fever may include choreiform movements, heart damage, a rash, erythema marginatum, and joint swelling and arthritis, as well as fever. Finally, acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis is another immune-mediated condition associated with streptococcus pyogenes infections. Acute post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis is something that would usually occur about a week after infection with either of either the pharynx or the skin by nephritogenic strains of beta-hemolytic group A. So a patient that had this condition would probably show up in your office with a puffy enlarged face caused by the retention of fluid from damaged kidneys dark urine output, uh, hypervolemia, secondary to fluid retention, and perhaps hypertension, also secondary to kidney failure. And of course, we would have labs consistent with a patient in acute kidney failure. So that's the important things to know about streptococcus in a nutshell. We'll see you next time. And we will stop there. And please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. This really helps us with the rankings in iTunes and will help get the word out about our resource and help us continue to keep providing you this content for free.